Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Dr. Yada Asi, a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is November 20th, 2023, and I am grateful to be here with Rabia Agbaria and Professor Ardi Imses. We are going to talk about international law, how it applies in the current crisis, the obligations it imposes on Israel, Hamas, and the international community, and how it can be used to envision and shape next steps. So very quickly, an introduction of my guests. Um, Rabia Agbaria is a human rights attorney completing his doctoral studies at Harvard Law School. He worked as an appellate public defender before joining the Haifa-based Adala Legal Center, where he argued major Palestinian civil and political rights cases. Rabia published on various subjects relating to Palestinians and Israeli law, including the censorship of online speech, the legal land regime, and the criminalization of Palestinian foragers. And Rabia is the other uh, Palestinian FMEP fellow this year. Welcome, Rabia. Thank you. Ardi Imses is Assistant Professor and Academic Director, International Law Programs at Queen's University Law School. He joined the Queen's Faculty of Law in 2018, following a 12-year career as a UN official in the Middle East, first with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, UNRWA, and then with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. Since leaving the UN, Ardi has continued to engage in high-level public advocacy on international law, peace, and security, including a number of invited addresses to the UN Security Council. Between 2019 and 2021, Ardi was appointed by the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights to serve as a member of the group of eminent international and regional experts, a commission of inquiry mandated by the UN Human Rights Council to investigate and report on violations of human rights and humanitarian law in the conflict in Yemen. Welcome, Ardi. Thank you. I wanted to have this conversation with the two of them because in the context of the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, Israel's subsequent and still on massive military campaign against the Gaza Strip and escalating threats and violence by Israeli settlers and soldiers against Palestinians in the West Bank, arguments over international law have risen to the forefront of the media and public narratives. And yet, I think many people don't quite understand what international law actually refers to or contains or who it affects. So we're going to have this conversation today to go over what we most need to know and understand about international law, including how it applies in this current and horrific crisis. Uh, so let's first get started with a basic maybe primer of the foundations of international law. Um, so basically, what is international law and who decided or currently decides what it is and how it is enforced? Um, who is subject to it and who is supposed to make sure that it is followed? Well, thanks so very much, uh, Yara. Um, a big question, but appropriate uh, in the circumstances. International law is the law uh, that governs relations primarily between states, but also between other subjects of the system, as we say in international law and discourse. Those subjects include, in addition to states, individuals, 
international organizations, non-self-governing peoples, uh, and, and, and others, um, even international corporations. But make no mistake about it, in terms of those legal persons who are subject to the international legal order, that is international law, the key subject is the state, right? So that's what general public international law governs, relations between states and other subjects, including non-state actors and, and so on, individuals. And just to give you an example, human rights law concerns itself with the rights of individuals vis-a-vis -vis the states who exercise effective control over their bodies, their lives, in the territories that they exercise effective control in. And so that's an example of a relationship between the individual as one who enjoys rights, human rights, and duty bearers, the state who exercises effective control over the individual and so on. Um, where does it come from? International law is a figment of an outgrowth of the uh, modern state system uh, uh, from about the 17th century Europe, really. The emergence of the idea of the state following the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 in, the, in, in Europe, uh, and the need for there to be rules that govern relations between initially the European state system and then with imperialism and colonialism and the spread of the idea of the modern nation state through those, those things uh, globally, so too the rules of international law applied globally. Um, today, the principal forum within which modern international law is discussed, both politically, but also juridically, uh, is the United Nations. It is uh, a, an organization that prides itself on being a universal organization insofar as those who are present in the UN states as members uh, um, represent the, the world population. There are about 193 member states of the United Nations to non-member observer states, uh, both the Holy See and Palestine, as it happens. And so because the UN is the um, universal organization uh, um, to deal with politics and international relations, international law is developed through the practice of the United Nations. Who's supposed to make sure it's followed? This is the unique thing about international law and also very frustrating, uh, I'm, I'm rather certain for many of your listeners. Unlike domestic systems of international law, rather domestic systems of law, forgive me, where ideally you would have um, government split in three branches, right? The executive branch, the judiciary, ideally an in independent one, um, and the legislative branch of government. And each of those branches have a role in ensuring that law is followed, have a role in ensuring the, the rule of law where all subjects of the system, individuals, government, and everyone in between are um, held to account under the law and the law can be imposed uh, on them uh, through the courts uh, and uh, through the legislature and through the police and so on. International law does not have the same structures of enforcement. It's more of a system that is based on what we call state consent, where because states are independent of one another, and because they're said to enjoy sovereignty and therefore are equal sovereigns, no one state can sit in judgment of another in theory, in theory, they both create the law through their actions 
state practice or say engagement in treaties. These are agreements between states. They create the law through their practice, but they may not sit in judgment with one, of one another except with specific mechanisms that exist. Indeed, international law, law then is part of a system of consent. States consent to abide by the rules, give up elements of their sovereignty thereby, and in abiding by the rules, hold themselves out to the rest of the international community as law abiding, engaging in legitimate discourse, legitimate action, and so on. And, and so the cycle continues. This of course leaves gaps, right? So by way of example, although all states are technically equal at law, we know that some are more equal than others, say at the United Nations, and including, and this is the difficult part, including through law. So in the Security Council of the United Nations, five members of that council enjoy a veto power. We know who they are, the United Nation, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, and China. This is, a, this is an outgrowth of World War II and the geopolitics that emerged from then. So we know that if they can exercise veto power over decisions that are taken in the Security Council, which, if they are decisions, bind the whole of the international community as a matter of law, under Article 25 of the UN Charter, then one can legitimately ask, well, really, are we all equal sovereigns? And clearly, we, you know, states are not. So there's a big difference between, say, the state of Palestine or, I don't know, Micronesia and the United States in real terms, including legal terms. But that doesn't mean that international law does not matter. It does. It shapes politically what is legitimate in the world around us. It can also have teeth, real teeth, legally, um, including for criminal accountability, depending on um, the sources of action. So we have an international criminal court. We also have other means of redress and accountability that exist that are discrete and individualized, but can be used creatively to seek justice. I will just jump in here um, on this great introduction about international law to, to just say that the international, what we're going on these days is a crisis in international law because of the moral hypocrisy claims that underpin these legal institutions many times, rightfully so, I believe. Um, because of what Ardi just described as, you know, the decentralized enforcement of international law, the lack of one body or some sort of a system that enforces international law in such a way. I mean, the Security Council, according to the UN Charter, is responsible for peace and security issues. Um, and it is supposed to be the organ that enforces um, these decisions, but there is clear hierarchy uh, between the different states that opens the door for abuse, um, particularly when it comes to Palestine. This is self-evident in the history of the veto power that the United States has um, used. Over 50% of the vetoes ever casted by the United States were in favor of Israel. We're talking about over, I believe, 42, 43 um, wow. veto resolutions or veto power that the United States used in the Security Council to shield Israel 
from censure, from condemnation, from responsibility, um, out of about 83, I believe, um, videos that the United States ever casted um, in the last, uh, or at least in the last, you know, 50 years or so. Um, this system is designed that way. I just want to emphasize what, what Ardi said about that. It's designed that way. It's a product of the post-World War II um, legal, you know, architecture of the international system um, that perpetuated certain power balance, if you want to uh, call it that way. Um, but we still see that, for example, in a, we're in a moment of crisis precisely because these institutions that were supposed to bring about some change and supposed to bring about some accountability, for example, the International Criminal Court, the, the project of the International Criminal Court rising in the 90s, and but also, you know, the International Court of Justice, which is, you know, you asked about who decides on, on, on law or what is international law. There are many different organizations that can decide. I, I, I don't tend to, you know, think about it as uh, there is only one authority. But just so you know, um, the International Court of Justice, which is considered, you know, a top authority in the field, mm -hmm. does not bind all states um, according uh, to, to the ICJ uh, statute. The Article 59 of the ICJ statute, of the International Court of Justice statute, says that the decisions bind only the parties of these decisions. Now, obviously, the International Court can recite these authorities, etc., but it tells you something about the hierarchy of these institutions and the way that they're um, inserted into legal uh, structure of international law in a very decentralized way and in a way that creates this, um, you know, um, lack of enforcement ability, really, um, or lack of hierarchy um, between different, certain different institutions. Um, I'm not saying, of course, that the ICJ is a, um, not important institution, but we have seen in particular, again, when we go to Palestine and Israel, we have seen before that the ICC issued um, its advisory opinion on the legality of the wall. And still, Israel, which is the state concerned, um, has flatly violated that uh, and dismissed the ICJ decision by its Supreme Court uh, judgments, saying that they don't agree with the legal uh, uh, analysis because it was based on um, misrepresented facts. So, so they basically uh, the the Supreme Court of Israel disputed the facts that led um, to the ICJ determination. Um, I think circling back from here, you know, to where we stand today, I think there are many many claims that are being made by different actors about what international law is. What we're seeing is international law today, not only as a system, but as a discourse. And it's a discourse through which people and different institutions make contesting claims. Um, and, and, and these you know, claims are formulated in a language that the law permits, that the law um, defines. And it is the framework that has become many times used by you know, people um, to name the aggressions or violence that they face. If if I might, if I might just piggyback on that for a point point of clarity, I think for your listeners, it it might seem difficult 
because in, in your mind's eye, you want law to be black and white. If you break it, there are consequences. If you adhere to it, then there's a predictable order and all is good. International law um, does not operate that way. Uh, we want it to, but it doesn't. So the best way to look at international law uh, is as a body of rules um, that imbue attention, that are imbued by attention, attention that is irresolvable. And here I have to give credit to Professor Marty Koskinyemi, a Finnish uh, uh, professor of international law. Law on the international plane is at once, that is at the same time, the creation of states who operate within their political parameters and interest. And once that law is held up and therefore power, it's creation of power. And once that law is, is created, it is held out as normative and binding all of the members of the international community, ostensibly without connection, without regard to the power that created it. So insofar as it is, it is, it is a normal set of normative set of rules, it offers a, a, a vision on to a utopian society, a society that can be better, that can be more just. And if you're looking to try and reconcile the tension between law as a creation of power or an apology uh, for power, as Professor Koskinyemi notes, or law as a plea for a utopia, don't waste your time. You'll be frustrated and your head will you'll bang your head against the wall and it will hurt dearly and you will never resolve the problem. Accept that international law and international legal order includes embedded within it this tension. And once you do, it's much easier to identify the legal points of entry that where law can be used critically and uh, um, uh, for, for the benefit of advancing the, the plea for, for a better society, a more just society. I'll give you an example. Law is everywhere. You can see it even in the, in the uh, Israeli propaganda videos now trying to um, convince the world, for instance, that hospitals in occupied Palestine are being used and abused by Palestinian paramilitaries, thereby rendering them targetable, uh, etc. The only reason why the IDF and why the state of Israel go through such lengths, of course, as they violate the law and these principles, is to be able to demonstrate that their actions are legitimate on the international plane. And that comes with a legal, rather a political consequence, because if what they're doing is legitimate, if it's legitimate self-defense, if it's legitimate deployment of force, then political consequences flow from that as well, right? Um, or if it isn't, then there are other consequences, legal ones. And all this to say that even the violators, the, the most egregious violators of public international law, want to be seen as law-abiding. And this affirms the normative force of international law, despite this tension that I've mentioned. Wow, thank you both so much. That was such a comprehensive, both framing and critique, and also kind of transitioned us into a little bit of specificity uh, with regard to Israel and Palestine. And so before I move on to our next section, just because there has been some... Uh, lack of clarity on this and some of the conversations I've seen based on who is a signatory to what and, and how all that works. Um, in terms of being subject to international law, Israel is subject to international law by virtue of being a state. Is that correct? That is correct. 
And are they subject to international law by other mechanisms or just by virtue of being a sovereign state? By virtue, by virtue of being a state, the state of Israel is subject to international law. In addition, agents, individuals who operate on behalf of the state of Israel, members of its military and so on, are also subject to individual laws that apply to them, namely international criminal law. So you have two types of responsibility on the international legal plane, individual criminal responsibility for individual criminal acts and state responsibility for actions of states. And so then the Palestinians, obviously a stateless people, you mentioned that the state of Palestine is a non-member observer state of the UN. Um, and through what vehicles are Palestinians as a people subject to international law and the state of Palestine? Is that considered a separate entity or how is that looked upon within international law? Right. A very good question. So remember when I had mentioned at the beginning of the talk that there are different subjects of the international system, and I said that non-self-governing peoples were also subjects of the system. I mean to say they have rights and obligations to a certain extent. Well, the same holds true for the state of Palestine and the Palestine Liberation Organization, which represents the Palestinian people on the international plane, and individual Palestinians who pretend to operate on behalf of the Palestinian state or indeed as individuals. So um, it is true that at least since November 2012, there is a thing in law called the state of Palestine. The state of Palestine juridically exists, as we say in law. It has acceded, signed up to a number of treaties, thereby binding itself to these international agreements. Many of them are key multilateral agreements, like human rights law, the laws of war, and other such. And therefore, the state of Palestine is bound as a matter of international law to its commitments because it has consented as a state to accede to these treaties. But so too are individuals in Palestine, either those who operate on behalf of the state of Palestine or indeed those who operate within the territory of the state of Palestine being the occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, and they can be held criminally responsible for actions that they undertake by virtue of the, of the fact that the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and indeed customary international law, in this case, customary international criminal law, apply to uh, to those uh, in, in occupied Palestine. Excellent. Thank you for that. Rabiai, did you want to jump in? No, just jump in to, to add on that in the sense that Israel is subject, of course, to, to international law for being a, a recognized state, a member state of the, of the UN. Um, obviously, there is disputes about what laws apply when. Um, and so just to give an example, very briefly, and we can delve into that later. Um, despite being subject to international law, Israel disputed for the longest time the fact that the Geneva Conventions apply to the occupied Palestinian territories um, and claimed that it still would apply them, but voluntarily. Um, and this was, you know, even a position of the Israeli Supreme Court uh, at some point. So what I'm trying to say is despite being subject to international law, there is still this, we will be grappling throughout this episode with this anxiety about what does that mean? What is being subject to international law means? What types of law, what bodies of law apply when and by who and who has the authority to impose them and how? 
Um, and so you will see that these bodies of law are often manipulated and they're open to interpretations or abuses. Um, and sometimes Israel will try to defy um, its commitments according to international law and claim otherwise, as we see unfolding today um, as we speak. Um, in this sense, also, it's important to highlight that Israel withdrew from the ICC. Um, it signed it, but then withdrew in 2002. It never ratified it and claimed that it was never um, a party to um, the, the Rome statute that established basically the International Criminal Court and its jurisdiction. But this, as Ardi um, has mentioned, it does not exclude its um, the, does not the, exclude the court's jurisdiction uh, that is um, bestowed based on um, uh, Palestine's uh, the state of Palestine's um, um, signature ratification of of um, being a party to the ICC, and we know that because based on also the the ICC's jurisprudence of the matter um, and the investigation that is now pending with the ICC prosecutor's office. It might be helpful, Yara, to just piggyback again on what Rabia had said for your listeners' benefit, that I had mentioned the subjects of international law earlier, but there's also sources of international law. You need to know exactly what Rabia said. It's not enough to just simply say international law applies. You have to be able to identify what body of international law applies and on what authority. So by what authority? And so here you have sources of international law, which are general treaties, which are basically agreements between states, and they can be multilateral, binding the whole of the community who signs those treaties, or bilateral, smaller numbers. But the principle of law is simple. You are bound by treaties you sign, right, in good faith to apply those treaties. Then you have custom. States, through their actions, so long as those actions are widespread, um, and also accompanied by what we call opinio juris, or the subjective belief of the state that the actions and the practice is required of it um, under law. As long as you have those two elements, then you have an, a custom. And the unique thing about custom is that if there is a norm that is established at custom, then it is binding on all states, regardless of whether or not those states agree to it or not. There are some exceptions um, but we won't get into those. So both Israel and Palestine are bound by international law, both treaties that they've signed up to um, uh, and custom, which would be applicable to it. And th their being bound to those things also takes place within a context, for instance, an a context of occupation or a context of armed hostilities. Uh, or context of apartheid, and so on. So you'd have to look at the factual circumstances to determine what the relevant law is, how it applies, who is bound by it, and what the consequences of that are. Excellent context. Thank you very much um, for, for both explaining and also pointing out some of the complexities and tensions in this system. Um, I want to move on to then a subset of international law, especially as to how it applies to the current situation. Um, so, you know, we've heard a lot in recent weeks, especially about the quote unquote laws of war. Um, and we've kind of seen this campaign of even wars have rules, even wars have laws, you know, war in and of itself is, is not illegal, but practices of how 
how we quote unquote do war, you know, we have to are, are have boundaries. So very briefly, can you just tell us first, what are the laws of war and what are they intended to control and who are they supposed to protect? Does it differ from international law more broadly? Yeah, no, very good question. So let's begin with the following. I just want to take a step back to something that you said in your question, which needs a bit of, of uh, ironing out. Is that law that war is not illegal. Actually, that's not the case. So <clears throat> the, the revolution that was the UN Charter, signed in 1945, uh, imposed probably what is the most important rule in international relations, the general prohibition on the use of force in international relations. In the 19th century and in centuries prior, to use force, to use war, was perfectly legitimate as a matter of international law and as a means of, of resolving disputes between parties on the system, between states and other such. After 1945, that becomes generally prohibited, save and except with two circumstances, possibly three, where force is used in self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, where force is authorized by the Security Council decision under Chapter 7 of the Charter, or where force is used in defense of a people's right to self-determination, right? Those are the exceptions. Now, that's the law governing the initial use of force. But notwithstanding that, there's another body of law which Yara's question, which your question Yara sets out or, or asks us to probe. And that is how force is used after the initial force is engaged, right? So there's a difference between the law governing initial resort to force, which I just mentioned, see Article 2, subsection 4 of the UN Charter for the general prohibition on the use of force and its exceptions, as I've mentioned, and the general body of law that governs how force is used when it is deployed, whether legally or illegally, right? If the force is deployed illegally or legally, there are still rules in war. And this is counterintuitive. However, could there be rules in a situation of complete and utter tumult being war? And that's the beauty of international humanitarian law, as we call it, or the other name for it is the law of armed conflict. So what does the law of armed conflict require parties of parties? How does it apply to the situation in Israel-Palestine? Well, the first place to begin with is to acknowledge that since 1967, Israel has been in a situation of foreign military occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. This is otherwise known in UN discourse as the occupied Palestinian territory, amounting to some 22% of the Palestinian people's historical patrimony. And by virtue of it being an occupation, two general principles apply. One, the occupying power, Israel, is never sovereign, can never be sovereign in the territory. If it were otherwise, then we would be running up against that initial prohibition on the use of force, which I discussed earlier, Territory may never be acquired through use of force, whether through aggression, that is an illegal use of force, or defensive war. So occupying powers can never use their, occupying, their position as occupants to claim sovereignty over territories they occupy. An example, Russia claims sovereignty over portions of Ukraine, impossible, illegal, can never do. The second principle is that occupation, therefore, is a situation that is meant to be temporary. 
right? The occupying power must withdraw and in favor of the civilian population that is subject to its occupation, we call it the protected population in law, who are themselves the sovereign in the territory. That is in the Palestine uh, case, that is the Palestinian people living in the occupied Palestinian territory. These are the two core principles of occupation law. There are many, many others, which among other things require the occupying power not to settle the occupied territory with its own civilian population. Uh, that is to say, not to colonize it, because the act of colonization is itself an attempt to annex, to illegally acquire the territory which it has no sovereign right in, right? In addition, they must treat the civilian population humanely at all times and protect that population. I had mentioned earlier that the protected population is a term of art. Article four of the fourth Geneva Convention, for instance, refers to all the Palestinian people or any people subjected to foreign military occupation as a protected population. So whereas the occupying power has the obligation to protect that population, they mustn't attack it. Certainly not through conventional means of war and so on. So that's the starting point. IHL, international humanitarian law, requires the occupant to leave the territory and to respect the right of the people of that territory to self-determination. And in contrast to these principles, to this principle of temporariness and non-sovereignty, if you like, Israel has claimed sovereignty over that territory. Israel has been in foreign military occupation of the OPT for 56 years, over a half century. It's evident, self-evident, and we can talk about this at further length, that Israel's presence there is unlawful. That is a question now currently before the International Court of Justice. There is another aspect of IHL that applies, especially during times of, of conventional war, which we see now uh, erupting since October the 7th, between paramilitary armed groups from within the occupied territory, that is Hamas and other armed Palestinian groups, and the occupying power being Israel. And this is what we call conduct of hostilities. And there are a number of key principles of IHL that govern the conduct of hostilities. The first one is proportionality, right? The second one is distinction. Actually, I've got it in reverse. The first one is distinction. The second one is proportionality. And the third one is precaution and attack. So what does distinction mean? Well, warring, even in a time of illegal war, The beauty of international humanitarian law is that it aims to ameliorate the impact of that force of the war on non-combatants, persons who are either no longer participating in the hostilities or are civilians uh, and by definition not participating in the hostilities uh, simpliciter, like on, on their face. And so the obligation is for warring parties to distinguish between civilians and civilian objects, hospitals, schools, uh, residential buildings and so on, and military objects and military personnel or combatants. And to the extent they, they fail to distinguish in their deploying of force, then you get into the realm of possible war crimes and even worse, right? Um, secondly, even where there is an, uh, an attempt to distinguish, one must use proportional force, um, uh, necessary only in relation to uh, a legitimate military objective. Right. So the military objective sought, the military advantage sought in deploying that force must be balanced against the number of casualties that will be impacted on non-combatants, civilians and others. 
Um, and then even then, you have an obligation to deploy force using precautions in attack to make sure that you use the least amount of force at the right period of time in the day under the certain conditions, et cetera, to ensure that there, was, there will be less uh, impact on civilians and civilian objects, et cetera. Thus the leaflet dropping and other such. Um, all of these things, as we dig deep, will have requirements. So for instance, if you put people on notice that their neighborhood is going to be destroyed or bombarded and you beg them to flee, well, that's all in good, but that notice needs to be effective. It needs to be reasonable in the circumstances. And if there's no place to flee, or if you've surrounded the area and you're not allowing any routes for, to, to allow them to flee, or if indeed you're bombing them while they're fleeing, then clearly these leaflets, this precaution in attack is being violated, right? So you get into the violation of these principles if the deeper you look. I'll stop there for a moment for further questions or comment from uh, Rabia, if he has any. Yeah, I, I wanted to, I mean, you, you've addressed so much rich information there, um, but I, I want to go very briefly back to this, this issue of proportionality, yeah. which, you know, many of, you know, increasingly even some of Israel's allies are questioning the civilian death toll. I mean, you know, was it a week or two ago, the attack on the Jabalia refugee camp, supposedly in search of one Hamas commander and killed dozens of sheltering civilians. You know, many pointed to that as an issue or, or a, a period when proportionality was violated. Who defines proportionality and how? Yeah, no, great question. And this is one of the gaps, one of the problems with international humanitarian law and the law on conduct of hostilities. I saw this in my work in Yemen as a member of the Yemen Commission of Inquiry, and you would see this in most any conflict. The attacking party needs to make an assessment based on prevailing circumstances at the time as to what constitutes a proportional use of force. By definition, therefore, the information relevant to making that assessment will always be in the hands, first and foremost, of the attacking party. Now, this introduces an obvious bias, doesn't it? Right? And so what the international community is left with, because attacking parties will usually never share information willingly uh, for national security reasons or whatever, right? What is left for the international community, whether it's um, the UN or even a trier of fact, like a, a judicial body or, excuse me, a tribunal or a commission of inquiry, is to draw inferences, to draw conclusions on the basis of information available. The very first thing that, that any commission of inquiry would do, or that the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court would do, is to say to all warring parties, say with respect to the Shifa matter, right? Please furnish us with the relevant information. Help us investigate. You claim that the Shifa hospital is being used as a military installation? Very well. Let us test that proposition. Provide us with all the information you have, ideally before you attack it, but give us that information so that we can then make an assessment that is independent, impartial, et cetera. And that process is very difficult by virtue of the power of the state on the international plane, the power of warring parties who control the field 
in this case, the occupying power controlling northern Gaza. So it's a difficult circumstance. Who makes the determination? In the first instance, it's the attacking party, their legal advisors, and so on. But make no mistake about it. It doesn't stop there. Decisions that are made in the field, if found later on by these other individual and independent bodies, to have violated principles of international humanitarian law can give rise to both state responsibility and individual criminal responsibility. And so you need to assess, well, what was the military aim being sought at the time? Is it a legitimate military aim, right? Is there a pattern of behavior, right? Um, so for instance, the Israelis have reported that for years that the Shifa hospital is a quote unquote command and control center for the whole of Hamas's armed wing. Well, they've been in that hospital now for just under a week and we have yet to receive any definitive proof of this command and control center. This mitigates very heavily against Israel's claim leave aside the historical record of false Israeli allegations having been made about abuse by Palestinian paramilitary organizations of civilian infrastructure. And this is where it's important for all of us, media, legal analysts, our good selves in this conversation, to take a step back and ask ourselves, what in fact is happening on the ground? You and I have now been engaged in a discussion about conduct of hostilities and proportionality and that takes time and effort, and it's important, no doubt. But in the meantime, the occupying power has bombarded civilian infrastructure with reckless abandon, indiscriminately, targeting civilians, etc., under cover of some color of right, which it has yet to, yet to prove, and which the law requires us to there, therefore uh, conclude that these civilian objects remain civilian in their essence, and therefore are not targetable, and through this bombardment, the occupying power is effectively ethnically cleansing the territory, right? They're creating places and spaces that are not safe. They're telling the people that are living and taking shelter in these places that, in fact, they should flee for their lives and then bombing them when they flee. And the idea is to create a panic so great that it creates a groundswell that will force these people to leave quote unquote, of their own volition. Clearly, this would be a compelled forcible transfer. Forcible transfer is a violation of the laws of war. It's a crime uh, of war. But that's what's actually happening before our eyes. And so it's important for us to not only deal with these discrete questions of proportionality, yes, important though they may be, but to see the forest for the trees and what is actually happening and trust the Israeli high command when they tell us what they're doing. Nakba 2023, I think Avi Dichter said it just the other day, Passages of the Bible have been cited by the Prime Minister of Israel to justify the complete obliteration of every living thing in the occupied Gaza Strip, etc. Thank you. And you brought up, I think, uh, wh where I want to go next, which is looking at some of these these big terms that we've heard thrown around a lot and and how they relate in the legal context. So specifically, you know, war crimes crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, which you just brought up, and, and genocide. And of course, you know, there has been uh, many, you know, contentious years and, and decades of, of especially um, classifications of genocide, criticisms that the world is too, um, I think there was a quote by the former president of MSF, too polite or too afraid to kind of make these um, 
judgments in the past, and we're seeing these phrases um, thrown out a lot. So first, can you define for us what is a war crime? Is it a crime against humanity? What is ethnic cleansing? And what is genocide? And then we'll briefly jump into uh, what it looks like from the ground right now. Sure, absolutely. Happy to do that. Um, so as I said that there, as I said earlier, there is a body of law known as the Law of Armed Conflict or International Humanitarian Law. And certain violations of international humanitarian law give rise to individual criminal responsibility. We call those loosely um, uh, grave breaches of international humanitarian law. But in addition to that, and those would be war crimes, and I can give you examples of that. Um, but the key is that war crimes focus on the perpetration of a discrete act, an individual act, and uh, which give rise to potential individual criminal responsibility for the persons who order the act or participate in the act. All right, That's a general sense. Uh, war crimes are also codified in another body of international law, international criminal law, and that is uh, both, it exists at both custom, but also exists in treaty form in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is the key treaty to which Palestine is acceded and which does apply on the territory of the state of Palestine, which includes all of the occupied Palestinian territory, including Gaza. Hmm? That's a war crime. Crimes against humanity kick it up a notch where you have what is known as a widespread and systematic um, commission of such acts. And it's their widespread and systematic nature that give them the category of being a crime against humanity. All the same things apply. That is the consequences that apply individually and under state responsibility for crimes against humanity would apply as they would to war crimes. Um, and then, then you have issues of genocide, right, which are now being uh, discussed uh, very uh, frequently. And here, that's governed by uh, certain treaties of international law, the Convention on the Punishment, uh, the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which basically says that um, it's a series of acts taken uh, by any party to a conflict. It doesn't have to be an armed conflict, though it typically is. But those acts have to be accompanied with this, what we call a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. So in this case, it is being alleged now very frequently, the special a good number of maybe 20 or 30 special rapporteurs that as United Nations independent experts issued a, an opinion just the other day, uh, warning the international community of a pending genocide that is taking place. There is a case now having been brought before the US courts in San Francisco, I think, uh, by the um, Center for Constitutional Rights, um, calling President Biden and Secretary Austin and Secretary Blinken uh, on their obligation to prevent the crime of genocide. Um, so, um, uh, so what we have in this case is the Palestinian people are clearly a member of a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. That's not a problem. And there are, certainly are a number of actions that are that are codified in the Genocide Convention, which are being, uh, which clearly are taking place. Killing members of the group is one of them. Imposing. Uh, conditions of life designed to destroy the group in whole or in part. Um, 
uh, inflicting mental and physical suffering on the group. Those are the actions. The real issue with genocide, which is a very contentious thing and a very difficult thing to establish at public international law because the evidentiary threshold is so very high, is the question of whether or not these actions are accompanied with the requisite element of intent. And in most cases of genocide over the past half century, it has often been the case that actions take place, but that the warring parties, those engaged in the alleged genocide, don't ever admit that they're, what they're doing is in fact intended to destroy in whole or in part. Um, and the unique thing here, many of our colleagues in civil society are arguing now, the unique thing in this case is that the Israeli high command, the prime minister of Israel, his defense minister, and other mem members of the government sitting at the ministerial table in the executive, members of the um, Knesset, the parliament, um, members of the media, uh, former members of government, have repeatedly over the past month uh, issued statements that demonstrate an intent, arguably, that demonstrate an intent to destroy all, in whole or in part. So I referred you earlier to uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's reference to the story of the Amalek, uh, which refers to a passage in, in the book of Samuel, um, which basically reminds the Jewish people of uh, uh, that they had been attacked by this non-Jewish group, the Amalek, and that the only response was to do away with them, uh, to destroy every man, woman, child, every living animal, goats, sheep, and other such. And uh, it is very clear that members of the IDF know their Bible. And when the Prime Minister of Israel mentions the Amalek, there's no question in my mind that that line is being crossed between providing specific intent. Same is true with the, the reference uh, by the Defense Minister uh, Yoav Gallant, that he's fighting human animals, um, and that as part of that, there will be a complete shutoff of water, fuel, food, uh, uh, and electricity to 2.3 million people. Um, of course, starvation as a tool of war is a war crime, also possibly a crime against humanity. But when accompanied by statements that evince a specific intent to destroy a whole civilian population, or in part, um, they might very well be genocide. And, and so the, I think the jury is still out on that, but we, we are in the territory now where it may very well be, be happening. And, and of course, all of these violations would, would engage individual criminal responsibility of those who act or order the commission of actions that, that uh, pursue these goals, um, or state responsibility under international law, the responsibility of the state of Israel to do a number of things, including first and foremost, to cease the action. Second, to make appropriate uh, assurances that the action will not continue. And third, to make appropriate rep rep uh, rep uh, uh, reparation for violations of the action. And then third states have obligations as well under international law. And briefly, can you tell us how in, in international law, ethnic cleansing differs from genocide? Um, I've, I've heard some people incorrectly use them interchangeably. Right. Thanks for that. Thanks for bringing me back there. Uh, forgot about ethnic cleansing. In fact, ethnic cleansing is not a legal term of art. It is a political term. 
uh, and it emerges from the, the, the Kosovo conflict and the former Yugoslavia and its breakup and so on. But the equivalent, if you like, in law, in international law, is what we call mass forcible transfer. This is prohibited under Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention relative to the protection of civilian persons in time of war. Your listeners should know that the Fourth Geneva Convention is the principal treaty of international humanitarian law that governs the relationship between Israel, the occupying power in the Gaza Strip, and the population that it occupies in that territory, being the protected Palestinian civilian population. And Article 49 prohibits the mass forcible transfer of a protected population outside uh, of that territory. The whole purpose, of course, is to, is to um, mitigate against or vitiate the possibility uh, of an occupying power using its position in the territory to commit war crimes, crimes against humanity, as well as aggression and annexation of the territory, to colonize the territory unlawfully, or to send those people to places where they might face further harm, right? It all, it all actually emerges from the experiences of the civilian population subject to foreign military occupation in Central Europe during World War II. Great, thank you for that. Um, I want to now turn, you mentioned, you know, this issue of, of war crimes and um, many credible organizations have alleged and documented what they say are multiple war crimes, uh, including collective punishment, which as you noted from day one of this, uh, Israel boasted of cutting off food, water, electricity, and fuel. And in subsequent weeks, we've seen the humanitarian toll of that, yet that has gone largely unchallenged. Um, this kind of deliberate, potentially indiscriminate and um, non-proportional killing of civilians. And increasingly, we're seeing, you know, genocide scholars and, and other human rights organizations raise questions of the potential for genocide. So what are the specific crimes that in the legal community uh, is, is alleged that Israel is committing? Oh, goodness. Where to begin? Um, we could go on for hours. There isn't a single, it would appear to me, uh, uh, relevant provision of international humanitarian law or indeed criminal law that, that is not being violated on the ground right now in Gaza and indeed in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, to a certain extent. You could see them there for, for all to see. I've mentioned uh, the potential of genocide, which is international criminal law, not humanitarian law. So I won't carry on about that. I think there's a real and substantial possibility that that may be taking place and that there is a, an ob obligation on all states, all men and women of conscience, to be sure. That's a political statement now uh, to do what they can to stop that. Um, but yes, there are certainly war crimes and crimes against humanity. So collective punishment is one of them. Um, it, it bears recalling that prior to the outburst of violence on the 7th of October, uh, the Gaza Strip had been uh, subjugated by the occupying power under a virtually virtually complete siege uh, for about 16 or 17 years, where nothing got in or out, 95% of the water, without say-so of the occupying power, uh, and 95% of the water was undrinkable. The United Nations had declared the, that the Gaza Strip was un, would be unlivable by 2020. Uh, water salination plants had been destroyed. Uh, unemployment was, uh, was upwards of 60%, uh, et cetera. Um, 
This uh, it gave rise to a determination by the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is a, an international non-governmental organization that has a special status uh, on the international plane because it is the custodian, what we call the custodian of the laws of war. The ICRC, which rarely makes public pronouncements, looked at what was happening in Gaza, again, prior to the 7th of October, and had affirmed that that was a situation of deliberate and collective punishment. Of course, under international law, individuals must be held responsible for their own acts. The act of collectively punishing a group by virtue of the fact that they belong to this group, etc., absolutely um, a violation of international law and a war crime. See Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention as an example. Um, you see that again now with the cutting off of food, water, electricity, and fuel. Wholesale, uh, as I said earlier, starvation as a tool of war is 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 a war crime uh, for obvious reasons um, because you're attacking the civilian population, trying to make them enfeebled. Uh, disease will set in, uh, and then ultimately, if they're not dead, they'll leave. Uh, this would lead to further compounding of the situation, further individual criminal responsibility and state responsibility for acts like forcible transfer and so on. Um, so you're seeing a lot of that. You're seeing a lot of conduct of hostilities violations around civilian targets, around rather civilian infrastructure, uh, destruction of water pipes and electricity flows and um, the hospitals, schools and shelters. You're even seeing violations of UN law. UN buildings are meant to be, and this is the former UN lawyer in me speaking, UN buildings are meant to be at all times uh, protected from interference by any party. They're not targetable and so on. So you see those violations. Of course, on the Israeli side, um, there will be arguments that these uh, buildings, these uh, installations have been converted from civilian installations to military ones. And of course, as I said earlier, they have the burden of proof. They bear the burden of proof of demonstrating on cogent evidence uh, uh, how these civilian objects have been converted into military ones. Indeed, if they have been converted into military ones and are part of uh, you know, a direct participation, making a contribution to the enemy, in this case Hamas, then you may target them with proportional force that is necessary in the circumstances that you use pre precautions in attack that does distinguish between civilian and combatant, even if civilians are still around this military target that has been converted. And these events are happening literally by the minute. And the unique thing about international law, the important thing for our listeners is to recall, Israel just can't simply say, no warring party can say, well, there is a general policy of the other side that they tend to abuse civilian uh, buildings uh, and fight from behind these buildings and so on. No, 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 no. They must provide evidence on each and every attack that they deploy force with at each minute of each day that they're doing this, that said civilian building has been converted to a military object. And absent that, the especially buildings that are marked with red crosses or red crescents or UN flags, it is presumed that, that those buildings, those civilian objects maintain their civilian character and therefore may not be targeted and the consequences of law will flow if they are targeted, et cetera. 
Um, on, we've not discussed Hamas. I think it's important to discuss ha the Hamas yeah, attacks. Yeah, that was my next question, oh, actually. Right. Can you tell us about um, the crimes that Hamas is alleged to have committed and how those interplay due to their status? Absolutely. I think it's it's vital that we do, because uh, especially for those who are engaged in the world of advocacy, they have to understand what the obligations of the paramilitary forces uh, in the Gaza Strip have if they're going to deploy force uh, of the intensity and breadth that they did against the occupying power. So there's so the first thing is they're they're bound by the same principles that I've spoke of earlier. They must distinguish in their deployment of force between military targets and objectives and civilians. And it appears based on the information that we have available which has yet to be established, you know, independently, but it does appear that at least 900 civilian Israelis were, were killed during the course of, of October the 7th events. Those numbers were initially slightly inflated, but the Israelis, to their credit, have corrected them. Um, but the important, the important point there is each and every one of those events would need to be looked at. Who was pulling the trigger, when, and against whom? And now uh, we've seen reports coming out of the Israeli press that I'd heard, I think, just yesterday of a police report, an Israeli police report, that acknowledges that, in fact, many, though I don't know to what extent, many of the civilian casualties suffered by Israel on October the 7th, that fateful day, may have actually been the result of a deployment of force unleashed by Israeli forces, the IDF and other such. So I think it's hard to determine who's responsible for some of the killings. But it's also, I think, self-evident that many of those killings would have been at the hands of the Palestinian fighters on that day. And individual criminal responsibility must flow for those things. And the Office of the, of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has the authority, as he does in uh, the Gaza Strip in respect of Israeli actions, has the authority to investigate those things and hold individuals to account for those actions. What's good for the goose, as we say in Canada, must be good for the gander. Um, but I should like to take this opportunity to offer the following comment and bring your listeners back to that distinction that I'd raised earlier about the right to use force versus how force is used. Right. Very important. Let me refresh your listeners uh, on this. International law provides rules on the right to use force. It also provides rules on regardless of how the right is exercised, even if it's exercised unlawfully, how force is used. And I've talked about how force is used in reference to international humanitarian law and principles of distinction and proportionality and precaution and attack. But there is still the open question of whether or not Palestinian paramilitaries have a right to use force in the first instance, as they did against, say, military establishments. You know, the Gaza Strip is probably one of the most highly surveilled borders on the in the world. I lived there for four years working for the UN, so I've, I've gone through it quite a bit. And it has military installations uh, surrounding it with, with regular armed forces of Israel, of, of Israel. And to the extent under international humanitarian law that those forces were engaged, targeted, killed. That's all perfectly legitimate under international humanitarian law on its face, right? We would have to look at the the specifics of each and every event. Say an Israeli soldier might have laid his arms down. You may not shoot him or kill him. Can't do that because that person is said in law to be hors de combat, no longer participating in hostilities. You can 
uh, take them and, and bring them in, in, into jail. And the idea being that you keep them away from the fighting area by incarcerating them. If you incarcerate them with the intention of using them as a bar bargaining chip, well, that's hostage taking and you can't do that. That's a war crime. So even if you've got a military person, you can't do that. But I go back to the legitimacy of the initial resort to force. And Israel is presenting itself to the international community as engaging in some form of self-defense. And with all due respect, that's absolutely incorrect under international law. Again, recall, Israel has been in foreign military occupation of the occupied Palestinian territory since 1967. It's there already through use of force that was unlawful in 1967. If it wasn't unlawful in 1967, it certainly has become unlawful through its prolonged nature, 56 years, in which it's imposed an apartheid regime of the, on the protected population, violating that population's right to self-determination and purporting to annex whole swaths of the territory. So they're there unlawfully, and their use of force is a continued one from 1967 to this very day, right? So they can't deploy the level of force that they're deploying on the people of Palestine in the occupied Gaza Strip and claim a right to do so under Article, Article 51 of the UN Charter. And for those of you who want to test this, have a look at paragraph 139 of uh, the uh, International Court of Justice's uh, wall opinion, where the court says, simply put, an occupying power may not invoke the right of self-defense under the charter from attacks that it is alleging, allegedly faced that emanate from within a territory under its occupation. And that is because, because it's under occupation, it's under the effective control of the occupying power. For instance, just to illustrate, Russia has been in foreign military occupation of Ukraine for a number of years now. It's there as an aggressor. Its position is going to invite legitimate resistance from the Ukrainian side, which the Ukrainian side is rightful, right, can rightfully engage in, subject to the laws of war, as I've mentioned. But if they, the Ukrainian side violates the laws of war and Russian civilians are killed along the way, Russia cannot continue to argue that its position, it can't argue that its position in Ukraine, its use of force in Ukraine, is in exercise of a right of self-defense. It's absurd. It's there as an aggressor. And the same holds true with Israel in the occupied Gaza Strip. Likewise, the reverse is true. Palestinian paramilitary groups have a right to use force to dislodge the occupation so long, and this is the most important bit, so long as that force is in keeping with the rules of the laws of war. They must distinguish between civilian and combatant. They must not take hostages. They must use precautions in attack. They must use proportional force, etc. Thank you. That was that was excellent. Rabia, did you want to add to that? Yeah, thank you, Ardi. This was really, really, really insightful overview. I will just say a couple of things about, um, you know, when we talk about Gaza and the occupation of Gaza, I think it's important to also um, again, go back to the question of, of disputes that are made within this context and highlight that um, the fuel cuts, for example, are not a new thing. And in fact, the fuel cuts and the electricity cuts that we're experiencing are a very severe intensification of the siege. 
But in fact, when the blockade or the siege was first imposed in 2007, the case that came up to the Supreme Court in Israel um, challenged these cuts in fuel and electricity, Basuni. The Basuni case uh, was the first case where basically the Supreme Court of Israel is denying that it's an occupying power um, in Gaza. And this is a position that is largely rejected um, in international legal community. So we know that there is no need to have so-called boots on the ground for an occupation to be established, that as long as that there is effective control, you know, you can establish. And these are, you know, we can go in, into lands. What is important here to understand is that Israel exercises post-2007 um, effective control over Gaza. The blockade did not start then. In fact, it started in the 90s. Uh, it only intensified uh, in 2007. And the fuel cuts that we're seeing today, you know, no electricity, no fuels, human animals rhetoric is an int further intensification of this post-October 7th. Now, you know, in terms of the legal frameworks available, of course, um, there are war crimes, there are crimes against humanity, and there is the genocide frameworks. I want to say something um and following up on, on, on the fact that, you know, if we understand Israel to be an occupying power in, in Gaza, which it is, um, as already said, there can't be no use of power as self-defense. This whole argument falls apart. And let alone, you know, using genocidal um, uh, force accompanied with, with rhetoric, of course, that that, that um, amounts to, to genocidal um, war, is definitely cannot be um, qualified to any terms of proportionality or whatsoever. Um, now, I think what is important to understand here about the debates about genocide or not, genocide as a crime necessitates or imposes a duty on third parties to act. And it's a duty to um, uh, prevent and punish for the crimes of genocide, according to the Genocide Convention. And so perhaps, you know, I, I just want to go a little bit beyond the body of law for a second and ask us, what do we expect from Palestinians? And obviously not only Palestinians are making the, these claims of genocide. These are the legal tools that are available at the international legal community. And I'm not trying to create here a hierarchy between genocide and crimes against humanity, uh, because obviously they're all bad. I just want us to remember that in 2008, um, the Goldstone Report found crimes against humanity uh, that Israel committed in Gaza. What did happen ever since? What avenues do Palestinians have to pursue accountability? And I hope we're going there in a second to talk about accountability. And when we, when, when Palestinians and other you know, international legal experts are mentioned. The 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 um, there's actually 36 uh, UN experts who who signed, uh, including maybe 20 or so uh, special rapporteurs, who signed on a statement about uh, um, genocide in the making in Gaza, who was preceded by few other um, uh, earlier statements about genocide in Gaza by top UN uh, experts, as well as many different. Um, positions by 
leading scholars in, in genocide studies indicating that there is also, I, I would say there is a forming consensus that the hardest part of the genocide uh, crime to prove, which is the intent, has been established. And so if we want to take these crimes seriously and these frameworks seriously, we have to contend with the claim that Israel is practicing a genocide, is committing a genocide in Gaza. Um, I personally think that we also need to go beyond genocide. Because I think personally that these frameworks, whether genocide, apartheid, they are legal frameworks, but they are also connected to certain historical um, uh, contexts. And so the use of genocide might be, you know, many have argued that the use of genocide has certain cultural references uh, that when it's leveled against Israel in particular, it will be treated differently because of the history of the Holocaust, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that the genocide convention was adopted as a result of the Holocaust. Today, up until today, the Holocaust remains the paradigmatic case for genocide. And of course, while the legal framework extends beyond the, 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 the particularities of the historical context, I do still want to acknowledge that there is certain, you know, um, cultural references that still tie us to certain frameworks. And I'm not saying this to dismiss any of these claims, but to think together how to broaden the, the, the discourse in international law. The same applies to apartheid. Apartheid became a crime. It became a crime against humanity, in fact. It became um, a legal framework post-apartheid South Africa. These historical particular cases have globalized and internationalized and became legal frameworks that are applied now to Palestine. But in fact, I just want to question, when will Palestinians have their own framework? When will Palestinian framework that I would argue is called the Nakba, and we have the language for it. It's an ongoing structure of violence, of ethnic cleansing. Um, well, will it be recognized uh, in the international community? I know my internet is perhaps a little bit unstable, so I hope you're hearing me, but um, I just wanted to put that on the table to push the discussion also beyond the, the, the crimes that are recognized, to have the lexicon to also reckon with the Palestinian experience that is now threatened by Israeli politicians. Nakba 2023, as as uh, uh, Dichter said, and as Ardi has already referenced, um, we have the language. And this Nakba may contain, you know, genocidal force and violence at certain moments at its time, but history did not start on October 7th. As bad as October 7th was for for Israelis, and it definitely legally amounts to war crimes, the taking of hostages. If we want to, you know, speak about for sure. We have to understand that there is a structure here, and this structure was identified as apartheid pre-October seventh by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, various other institutions, and this structure, we we need to be able to also articulate the Palestinian experience and to come to terms with the Palestinian experience. And I just want us to think together or to, 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 su to suggest that we need a legal framework of the Nakba. I, if I might, Yara, I, I, find what, I find what Rabiha just said, I think, extremely important. 
uh, for the following reasons. I'm glad he raised it. Initially, I was not entirely sure, but as he developed his thought, it made it, there, there is something there. Uh, I tend to look at things, uh, these questions, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and so on, as a public international law, lawyer would on their face, uh, what the law is as it exists, apply the facts to that law, come out with a reasoned conclusion, etc. But what Rabia is encouraging us to do is to engage as scholars, but also as, as community members, to engage in what we call an international law, the progressive development of international law. And I was reminded as he was speaking of where genocide as an idea comes from, as a, very, as, a, as, as a legal category, where it comes from. It came from the work of individuals like um, uh, Raphael Lemkin and Hirsch Lauterpacht following World War II and, and around that mid-century time, where they came together and said, there is something out of these experiences that must be recognized at law for the betterment of humankind to ensure that we don't ever relive these events. And it reminded me, Rabia's comments of, of something that I oftentimes think about. And in fact, it comes through in the book that I've just finished on the UN and the question of Palestine. That sadly, and regretfully though, I might I, I have to say this, Palestine has a lot to offer the world uh, and its experience under international law has a, and an international order and in history has a great deal to offer the world. And one of, one of those things might be the progressive development of new ideas, new crimes, new to make sure that others don't have to live through what the Palestinian people have been made uh, to, to, to go through for, for seven, over eight, almost eight, eight decades now. So good, good uh, on Rabia for encouraging us to think more broadly. At the same time, just a reminder for your listeners that each of the categories that we've discussed are well-known and well-established under international law, and we don't need to create new crimes for them to attach to what is happening uh, to events in Palestine uh, uh, and, and with results that are predictable and required uh, under the international rule of law. And with that, I kind of want to turn to the natural endpoint of what is when we think about what is the purpose of law, which, yes, it's flawed and imperfect and it's human made and oftentimes is too slow to react. But, you know, it's it's a tool that we use and um, it's not just, you know, to tell us the bounds of what is acceptable and what is not, but we hope also to provide mechanisms and tools of accountability. And I think this is where um, many people kind of question and are concerned about uh, this field because often we see uh, you know, rampant impunity, uh, especially including when it comes to Israel, but clearly not, not only Israel. We look around the world, we look at Syria, we look at Yemen, we look at um, you know many geographic contexts where we we find legal impunity. So, in this context, what would or could accountability look like? We've already had um, leading human rights and humanitarian organizations essentially explicitly call some of these actions war crimes, both committed by Hamas, but of course also by the state of Israel. So. What does that mean? Um, according to international law, what could be done to hold perpetrators accountable? Is this states? Is this individuals? What does accountability look like? And um, why have we thus far been unable to really achieve accountability in many instances? 
Sure. Why, why don't I lead and then Rabia, maybe if you want to come up and bring up the rear. Um, so the first place to begin is to ask what, what responsibility looks like under international law. I mean, that's the first place. And I had mentioned earlier, and I should just set it out again here for your listeners, that there, <clears throat> there are, if you like, two types of responsibility that are triggered by what's happening. Responsibility of the state and responsibility of individuals. So let's look at state responsibility first. There is a body of law known as the law of state responsibility. And it, it is triggered where there is an internationally wrongful act, a violation of an obligation of a state attributable to the state. And there are all manner of those happening right now in Gaza and in, in occupied Palestinian territory uh, committed by the occupying power, Israel, a state. Um, and the law of self state responsibility requires three core things of the state engaged in the illegal act or the internationally wrongful act, as we call it. First, to cease the act. And that's why it's extremely important, extremely important above all that we all collectively urge everyone in our communities, locally, regionally, internationally, that this war cease now, that there's a ceasefire now, right? That's the first thing that must be done. Second, the state must, must give, as I said earlier, appropriate assurances of non-repetition, which is typically a statement that is given to the international community and, and so on. But more importantly than that is to, is to make appropriate uh, 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 reparation for damages that flow. Uh, reparation can include all manner of things, including restitution, that is placing the victims of these acts in the position that they would be, but for the illegal act having happened right? Re-establishing the status quo ante, if you like. And if the status quo ante, I should say, includes a host of all manner of other international law violations, then you need to keep digging, right? So here I speak now of the right of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and their properties from which they were ethnically cleansed in 1948, 49, and so on, right? So there's restitution. Then there's compensation, financial compensation, and then there's satisfaction, which is something that I don't think will be sufficient in this case, but basically things other than constant, than reparation and rather restitution and um, uh, compensation, like apologies or try, trying people domestically for violations of war and so on. I don't think we can expect any of that. But then there are third state obligations where there are violations that are serious violations of what we call peremptory norms of international law, a derogation from which is not permitted, things like the violation of a people's right to self-determination or the, or the imposition of a regime of apartheid or the commission of, of crimes against humanity uh, and so on, uh, genocide and other such. And third states have obligations there, like Canada, the United States and others, and their obligations are simple. They must first do everything they can to lawfully bring the legal situation to an end, right? That includes diplomatically, economically, et cetera, militarily. They must cease the arms transfer, for instance. They must, um, most importantly, not recognize as lawful the illegal actions that are being taken by the state who's engaged in the unlawful act. Um, so to suggest, for instance, that Israel can do all of this because it is exercising a lawful right of self-defense. They're bound not to do that as a matter of state responsibility. 
um, because first of all, Israel doesn't have the right under Article 51 of the uh, UN Charter to use self-defense in this way. In any case, it's using disproportionate force and that doesn't distinguish between civilians and combatants. And therefore third state responsibility is targeted all a part of a violation of the peremptory norm by Israel. Then there's individual responsibility, which a lot of people uh, in, in the public realm uh, think about when they hear accountability. Well, what are individuals gonna face? Will they go behind the bars, et cetera? And indeed, under international criminal law, uh, there are prospects of this happening. Individuals are responsibility for the actions that they take, including in, in relation to and on behalf of a state. So the minister of defense or the prime minister they don't enjoy immunity from criminal prosecution for committing a core crime like genocide. That doesn't exist. There is no immunity for that. Um, and so what you have is a various prospects uh, of enforcement of these principles, both at the domestic realm and on the international plane. So domestically, there are many states that have incorporated their international legal obligations to prosecute or extradite war criminals, those who author crimes against humanity and uh, participate in them, uh, and those who engage in genocide, to prosecute or extradite at the domestic level, right? There's domestic legislation that is being utilized now by the CCR in the United States or by other uh, civil society organizations and legal teams in the domestic realm. There might even be universal jurisdiction cases that are raised. Universal jurisdiction is a type of jurisdiction that allows all states to utilize their domestic courts to prosecute or extradite those persons who are alleged to have engaged in core international crimes, including genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, because it is the interest of all states to ensure that those who do engage in such, such actions are held to account. There you get into political problems where domestic legislation might differ from country to country, and there might be political hurdles that need to be um, uh, jumped over in order to get successful prosecutions. And then finally, on the international plane, there are all manner of different ways to enforce this stuff. You have the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. There's an open investigation. He needs to be moving quickly. He's been sitting on his hands, but a lot more pressure needs to be brought to bear on him, including by members, that is, the Assembly of the States who signed the Rome Statute. They will be meeting in New York in December. And that would be a good time for states to sort of press the prosecutor to do the right thing by issuing indictments and warrants for arrest of those who are alleged to have committed war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other such in the conflict in occupied Palestine. Um, and then there are also other softer mechanisms available at the United Nations, special rapporteurs procedures, even recourse to the International Court of Justice and other such. So there are many ways to seek accountability. We just need to isolate the appropriate ones, tactically appropriate for the time and for the purpose, and anticipate what the results will be, including politically and legally, in order to make sure and maintain massive uh, and best and highest, if you like, uh, result. I'll stop there for now. And I just want to, you, you brought up something that I think many of our listeners would be interested in, which is you kind of commented on the pace of the ICC investigation. Um, many have criticized the ICC for just in general, kind of not 
taking the Palestinian issue seriously. Um, can you comment a little bit just what what are the 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 factors that that play into why that may be the case? Obviously, you know, we don't know without interviewing him, but from your assessment. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's lots of conjecture. So take what I say with a grain of salt. Conjecture, because there's no way to know what is in the mind of the prosecutor. And um, we can only assess based on decisions that the prosecutor has made, for instance, with allocation of budgets or human or material resources to the situation in Palestine. But to take your listeners back a bit or your, your viewers back a bit, um, the International Criminal Court is the first <clears throat> sitting criminal court of general jurisdiction over what we call core crimes, uh, core international crimes, war crimes, which are four in number, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and the crime of aggression, which is a bit harder to pursue uh, if uh, in the circumstances of Palestine, because Israel isn't a party to, to uh, the an amendment on aggression. It's a, the other three do apply to what the Israelis are doing in the territory of the state of Palestine, aggression not by virtue of a, a provision that, that I won't go much into now. Um, but the key about the court is that it operates on the basis of what we call complementarity. And this is a masterstroke, I think, uh, and good for international law. Um, and how complementarity works is to say, look, the court won't allow itself to seize jurisdiction over any situation, which is a term of art, over any situation, if that situation is being looked at at a domestic level in a domestic court in good faith. And this is a masterstroke because what you want through the international criminal law revolution, if you like, through the Rome Statute, is to create responsible actors domestically where they're most capable of acting, where there will be access to witnesses, where there will be access to uh, domestic systems of enforcement and so on. At the domestic level, the court structures and systems are far more robust. So complementarity basically incentivizes states parties to the Rome Statute to prosecute domestically using the similar jurisdictions that I'd meant, the similar legislation that I'd mentioned earlier uh, that might have been incorporated domestically or under universal jurisdiction or what have you. But absent any domestic prosecutions, that's when there might be a possibility for the court to seize jurisdiction. There's no complementarity, and so the court is a, last, a court of last resort, if you like. The court will only seize jurisdiction over a situation in the territory of a state party. Palestine is a state party. Its territory has been determined by the pretrial chamber of the court just a couple of years ago to comprise the occupied Palestinian territory, being the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. So it applies. And it might also apply to nationals of states' parties or nationals of non-states' parties, like Israel, not a party to the Rome Statute, who are alleged to engage in actions that violate the statute, the Rome Statute, in the territory of a state party, being Palestine in this case. So it is possible for the, for the prosecutor to, to seize jurisdiction. And indeed, the prosecutor has had an investigation that is ongoing, getting to Yara's question, has had a case that has been ongoing, an investigation rather, that has been ongoing for a good number of years now. Um, and the next step, of course, is for the prosecutor to issue indictments and arrest warrants. So we're waiting on that and have been waiting for a good number of years. So the question arises, well, why is the prosecutor not issuing the indictments in the face of what we're seeing here? 
And it fundamentally comes down to one thing, prosecutorial independence. For any criminal prosecution to be effective, it must be independent. It must be seen to be independent. And if it isn't independent, then whatever the result of the prosecution, so goes the line of thinking, will be tainted by politics. And so the prosecutor has very regularly, very regularly pleaded his independence and requested uh, all stakeholders to be patient, et cetera. The real question now becomes one of, well, to what extent is the prosecutor's plea for independence something else? Is there something else at play? And this is where we get into the areas of conjecture. We can only assume that there might be pressure having been brought to bear on the prosecutor by looking at his other actions, say in the Ukraine matter. It took all of maybe a week for the prosecutor to issue an arrest warrant in respect of President Putin following the actions of one of his ministers on the ground in Ukraine. Look at the amount of resources thrown by the office of the prosecutor and by states who are providing support, financial aid, uh, and human aid uh, resources at the office of the prosecutor. It only took a, a little while to, uh, following the emergence of the, the eruption of the situation in Ukraine to see how much resource was thrown at that situation where the prosecutor sent all manner of staff to the field. They're looking deeply at the situation. They're documenting chapter and verse alleged crimes and preparing warrants for arrest and indeed issued one in, in respect of Mr. Putin. It doesn't take much to compare that response with the response or the non-response, we might call it, with the situation in Palestine. And so this gives rise to legitimate questions and pressure must be brought to bear. But again, there's no way of telling 100% whether or not the prosecutor has been uh, implicated or is acting in an improprietous way. We can only continue to put pressure on the prosecutor to do the right thing. And I'm glad to say that two days ago, five states, all of them uh, members of the Rome Statute regime, led by South Africa, um, submitted the situation in Palestine to the prosecutor um, the prosecutor acknowledged that submission, uh, acknowledged that he's already looking into the situation. But what is unique there is that that submission, that referral by South Africa and these other four states makes direct reference to genocide and the crime of genocide. So the prosecutor has no choice as a matter of law to look into whether or not genocide is being perpetrated. And clearly, based on the evidence that exists now, uh, that is an important thing. That's great. Thank you so much for explaining that. That was really useful. Um, and then turning from the the International Criminal Court, kind of drilling down a little bit to the Israeli Supreme Court, because you had mentioned how accountability within a state uh, may act on a global scale. Rubia, I know that you have quite a bit of experience um, working in that realm. So where is there accountability to be found within the state? To be found within the state, um, how, how, where does what role does the Israeli Supreme Court, if any, play in this? Yeah, I think this is a very important um, piece to scrutinize because many times um, in different circles in in um, Western legal academia, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court is regarded as the beacon of democracy. You know, and we remember this discourse within Israeli society uh, pre uh, pre uh, October seventh. 
um, about the judicial overhaul, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, if we look at the jurisprudence of the Israeli Supreme Court pertaining to Palestinians, we will realize very quickly that the Supreme Court has never been um, a guardian of Palestinian rights. In fact, it, you know, over constructed a regime that oversees uh, their violation systemically and systematically and, and in a way that in fact um, violates international law in a very systemic way. Um, starting from, you know, Al-Basuni, uh, if we talk about Gaza, starting from Al-Basuni decision that um, applies or denies the, the, the continued occupation um, of, of the Strip, but still acknowledges some legal duties that may stem from other um, uh, frameworks, etc. But the Supreme Court has really, over the years, proven through its jurisprudence that there is no accountability to be found uh, in Israeli courts. Um, and this, you know, has been time and time again, most recently, um, in one of the most important cases is the Becker Boys. We're talking about the 2014 Becker Boys case, the four kids that were um, killed by Israeli uh, airstrikes on the beach um, during the 2014 Israeli war on Gaza. And only in 2020, um, um, 2022, the Supreme Court dismisses uh, petitions to reopen that investigation gives the green light basically for the closure, the permanent closure of that case. Um, and this is, I'm bringing this example uh, because it is, you know, a testimony to the to the complicity um, of the Israeli Supreme Court in erecting this regime that is unable and unwilling to look into uh, Israeli war crimes but in fact is whitewashing um, these war crimes through the mechanisms and abusing the, the legal mechanism to whitewash these uh, war crimes under the pretext of you know, investigations and et cetera. We know we have enough evidence um, to show that the Israeli Supreme Court has not been an effective um, um, institution in guarding Palestinian rights or delivering any form of accountability when it comes to Palestinian um, rights, whether in Gaza or in the West Bank, where we see settler violence and we see military violence and we see various other violations of international law over the years. Uh, and still, there is barely any accountability Brought and this, you know, is is not only a testimony of the Israeli Supreme Court. It's only one organ in a broader legal regime uh, that includes prosecutors and includes uh, military judges and includes. But you know, if we want to look at the um, at the Supreme Court as this embodiment of this pyramid, uh, then we do see that you know the system is unable and unwilling to prosecute war crimes. Um, and to deliver any form of, of justice for Palestinians. Um, and this has been evident, you know, this tension between the international norms and the ability of the Israeli legal system to come to terms with them is evident, you know, not only in the apartheid reports, uh, but way before with, with the ICJ uh, wall advisory opinion, 
that again the Supreme Court, as I mentioned before, um, um, has ruled against. So I think all this to say, um, there is no forms of accountability that are to be found in the uh, by turning to the Israel Supreme Court. I do want to also mention that I personally represented last summer um, a client, Atiyah Nabahin, who was uh, paralyzed. But in 2014, after being shot in the neck in times of ceasefire, um, and I hope I will be talking separately about this case in a different episode. But Atiyeh was killed alongside his 12 other family members um, on the 8th of October. Um, and his case that I represented, the last bit of it, the last procedure of it, a rehearing request before the Israeli Supreme Court was dismissed earlier this year. Um, and this shows us, and the, the, his case was a case for civil compensation for his injury that he suffered on his 15th birthday uh, on his family land, just 500 meters across the fence, the militarized fence, when an Israeli soldier shot him in the neck, permanently paralyzing him. There was no justice for Atiyah Nabahin. There, were, there is no justice for Palestinian victims in the Israeli legal system. And this should tell us the whole story, that in times of, of ceasefire, even in times of you know, supposed so-called peace, um, there is no justice for people who are harmed and maimed and killed um, by Israeli fire. This is considered, unfortunately, the status quo. And it does not break the news. And it does not prompt White House speeches. But these people, these victims are there. And um, and, and and their pain is, is there. And the families are there despite all of the killings. And so, you know, taken together, all these cases, I think, show us that Palestinians have almost nowhere to turn to. And it is really a moment of crisis when we look at the international legal system to understand whether it will deliver what it preaches in the sense that um, you know, there has been a critique of the international legal system for years that it is biased or um, designed in a way that it perpetuates the colonial condition, including the international criminal uh, law and the international criminal court that has been not exclusively, but predominantly used against um, um, situations of, you know, so-called post-colonial world. Um, and so it is another moment or another episode of this story where the international system is put into question about what it promises and what it can do. Um, and 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 we we would have to wait and see um, whether the international um, you know what Ardi was talking about, whether the the prosecutor, whether the international legal system will have any meaningful um, avenues for Palestinians to seek accountability. Thanks for that sobering uh, reminder, and so sorry for the loss of your client in what was such a unjust experience from top to bottom. And it's a good reminder that too often, I think justice is, uh, you know, peace is is called for of the quiet of the oppressed rather than justice uh, for those perpetuating crimes. 
Um, I have so many more questions I could ask the both of you that we were, did not have time to get to today about hospitals, about use of white phosphorus. I'm hopeful we can continue these conversations moving forward. I just want to first turn to you, Ardi, for any closing thoughts or comments, um, anything you talked about today or anything you want to leave our audience with for today. Sure. Uh, I guess the, the, the most important thing is to recognize the limitations of international law and the limitations of law generally. Law is but a tool in a toolbox. Uh, and ideally, there are other tools at once disposable disposal rather uh, to uh, to deal uh, and rectify with situations of injustice. That's the first thing. The second thing is I would encourage your listeners, although the, to resist what the media is doing, which is to pull us all into detailed conversations about the stuff we've talked about today. You know, is that proportional? Is that a hospital? That sort of stuff. And to see the forest for the trees. Uh, the government of the state of Israel, this one and pretty much all previous ones have made no mistake about their desires. It's impossible to establish and maintain a Jewish state in a place that you covet if that place is full of non-Jews. And so every single policy that the state of Israel has pursued vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian people since get-go has been to manage the population, the indigenous native population. And as this event is unfolding, I can't help myself but be refreshed or reminded, harrowingly, really, of statements given by the Israeli leadership in 1947 and 48 in the height of the war. And you can test all of these out by just reading Benny Morris's work or Elan Pape or indeed the book that I've just finished writing. Um, and they're very clear about what they were doing in 1948. You can do things in war, I'm paraphrasing Mr. Ben-Gurion, that you can't do in times of peace. And we are seeing that play out in front of our eyes, not behind closed doors, not to be locked away in a cabinet for 30 years in some central archive that you don't get access to until decades later. We're seeing it happen right now before our eyes. There is an ethnic cleansing taking place at the very least of the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip. And we need to take Israeli leadership seriously when they say to our faces what they are doing. And they have said expressly that they are doing Nakba 2023. And so we must stop at nothing to make sure that that does not happen. Otherwise, we'll be bound, our children will, will be bound, and their children will be bound to live it and relive it in the way that our parents had to, in the way that we have had to. The law is important, but keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Stop the war now. Stop the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Thank you, Ardi. That was very powerful. Rabia, I'll, I'll end with you. I echo everything that Ardi said. I um, do want to just mention, you know, as we walk out of this and this episode ends, the violence in Gaza continues and we all have the duty to keep um, following up with the situation, to speak up against it, um, not to get desensitized for the amount of, of mass violence that is unfolding, the amount of, you know, killings. Um, the news cycle may move on, but we have a duty um, to continue speaking about Gaza and what's going on in Gaza. And I will not let anyone convince us that speaking out for Gaza these days, I mean, at least I'm coming from 
Harvard these days, where it's very fashionable to hear claims um, that speaking up for Gaza is endorsing anti-Semitism, or speaking up for Gaza um, is is uh, is denying the 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 pain of Israelis or or calling for killing all Israelis. We need to maintain um, focus. These are, you know, discursive distractions uh, that happen to distract us from the material violence that continues for over 40 days in Gaza. And so as long as there is no ceasefire, and when even when there is ceasefire, the bar is so low. The bar is so low. There is over a million people displaced. Where will they go? We're, we're only in the beginning of a crisis that we haven't seen before. And so we need to keep thinking and we need to keep expanding and we need to reckon ultimately with the Nakba, with the continuous ongoing Nakba and come to terms. And we as legal scholars as well, I really enjoyed this conversation because this is inviting us to think about how to understand the situation and how to continue to understand it. And me personally, I want to end on the note that as the world watches Israel commit a Nakba live stream, we need to reckon with it. We need to recognize it and we need to make it stop immediately. Thank you, Rabia. Thank you, Ardi. This was such a fascinating conversation with the two of you. You helped clarify so much, but you also brought up new questions and issues for us to wrestle with and consider in the coming days, weeks, years, decades, um, unfortunately. And uh, I want to uh, thank you on behalf of our listeners, and hopefully we can continue these kinds of high-level discussions of international law moving forward. Um, I, of course, recommend that our listeners check out our website, Foundation for Middle East Peace at fmap.org for this episode, links to our guests' work and writings, and of course, future issues will be continuing to cover Gaza, also what's happening in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and um, in Israel as well. So thank you again for joining us, and this is Yara Asi. I appreciate it, and I'll see you all next time. <laughs>